Yeah, God is good, eh? Yeah, so I really trust that people experience something of God tonight, and we're set free. I saw a bit of deliverance going down in the front. That's incredible. I saw people being ministered to. It's amazing. Yeah, God can do so much more than we can do with our words, right? Okay, so um, before I preach, um, Michael Swain, who uh, heads up 4SA, there was a clip that I was going to show, but it's on YouTube, and because um, we don't have Wi-Fi here, we haven't, um, we haven't reached that level yet as a church, <laughs> I asked Michael just to share, because there are some very important political things happening with regards to the church and religious freedom, and Michael's very involved in that space. So, Michael, do you want to come share with us? And then I will send the video clip out to you on WhatsApp, so you can all watch it, but I thought, we've got Michael here, let's use him. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Dylan. That was a very special time. Wonderful. How good it is to be together. Would you like to stay together? Did you enjoy, did you enjoy lockdown? <laughs> I just want to tell you on a, on, a, on a serious note, because, and I want to start off by saying every voice counts. Every single one of us has the opportunity and the capacity to make our voices heard, and we live in a democracy. We should be involved. I believe it's our civic duty to be involved in the affairs of this nation because they affect you and they affect your children. And we're facing a very challenging situation at the moment because you may recall when the president announced the end of lockdown, then with a little bit of a sleight of hand, suddenly there was these new regulations passed for 30 more days of lockdown. And then the idea is, of course, that they published under the National Health Act even wider and greater powers than they held under lockdown. Government unaccountable to parliament, unaccountable to the judiciary, unaccountable to anybody. Just an executive able to make every decision they want to, to govern every aspect of your life. And I'll give you just one example, in case you don't believe me. And you shouldn't believe me. You should go and check it out for yourself, by the way. But the Regulation 15 basically says that government can compel you, that is, force you, whether you like it or not, if they declare any disease to be a notifiable medical condition, and it could be something as simple as a common cold, even if they suspect you of having it, you can be compulsorily quarantined in a state facility against your will and for an indefinite length of time. They can compel you to have any treatment that they choose. They can force you to be vaccinated if they want to. Now, of course, they'll tell you, well, we're never going to do that. But then why do they actually want the power to do it if they're never going to do it? They say that you may have to produce a vaccination certificate just to come into a building like this. It means that your pastor is basically the policeman. He has to stand at the door and say, do you have a vaccination certificate for whatever vaccine they may have prescribed for your treatment? And if you haven't got one, they can say to you, go away. The pastor must say that. I believe that's about as close to blasphemy as you can get to say to the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ when they can and cannot come, when people who want to receive healing, want to receive deliverance, want to hear the gospel, can actually be told on the basis of whether they have a vaccine or not, no, you can't go away. I think that's dead wrong. And if you don't want to live like that, then you need to make your voice heard. And it's very simple. We have a website forsa.org.za, forsa.org.za. You're going to get the link later. 
hopefully, if you have a link, if you have a computer. Get on that. It'll take you literally less than three minutes to make your submission. Every submission counts. The more submissions that we make, the louder our voice becomes. Because government, if enough people say no, government can't just say, well, we're going to go ahead anyway. Then we can do something about it. But if we sit and say nothing, then we agree with whatever they say. And then we must live with the consequences. But I believe that we need to stand up in this hour and make our voices heard and make them count. We've got one opportunity. Closing date is Good Friday. Interesting that, isn't it? Good Friday is the closing date for submissions. Let's make it a Good Friday. Let's not have the death of our democracy on Good Friday. Let's see us forging into a new life and a new season of love and life and the goodness of God. Amen? FORSA.org.za. Do it. Thank you. Yeah, very good, very good. So while I was sitting at the back, I sneakily sent you all the link. So if you go to the Musenberg Broadcast Group, you should get the link. And uh, please, let's do that. Uh, I remember signing a, a petition a little while ago for, uh, is it Dear Essay? Yeah. Yes. And that, yeah, and they actually phoned me to follow up, which I thought was incredible, and asked me, um, yeah, they're, they're stalking, oh, they're stalking me. Oh, hectic. Okay, that's not good. <laughs> okay. Okay, right, cool. So, um, because we're family, and we're a church, uh, I just wanted to show you these fine specimens. <laughs> Look at that gold leaf on those books, guys. Just saying, I found these in George. I was very excited. And um, They're from the 1800s, in case you were wondering. The one is called The Lay Preacher's Guide, Bright Words to Soul Winners. Excellent book. I really enjoyed it. I'm being honest now. And this is called Abraham on the Obedience of Faith by F.B. Mayer. So all the Methodists are very excited. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> whenever I find a good book, I'll come and share it with you. <laughs> you just can't borrow them. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> okay. So, um, so personally, I've been working my way through the book of Mark. And uh, I've been going very slowly and uh, if you recall, I preached a few weeks ago on Mark 9, the Transfiguration, which is this incredible uh, passage where we see uh, Jesus transfigured before his disciples. And the disciples get kind of this glimpse of Jesus in his glorified state. Remember, his face shines like the sun and his clothes were as white, with the guy said, whiter than anyone could have bleached them. Okay. And the three disciples see this when they're on the mountain. And when I mentioned that, I also mentioned that I'd like to preach more about Christ. Excellent, that's an amen. <laughs> and the study of Christ is called Christology, okay? And I, want, I really personally feel, um, we've had some amazing preachers. We had Ross Gillespie come and preach about the anointing, which was great. That was awesome. Uh, I'm a little bit biased because I was in Ross's church for a very long time and he taught me how to preach. But it was an excellent preach. And then um, we, I wasn't here, but Mike preached on the um, apostolic, which I heard was brilliant as well. So really cool. But tonight I want to bring it back. And those are great. I just want to say those are great. But I do feel to preach more of Christ, to know the character of Christ and who he is. We are called Christians after all. Okay, and I looked for a quote about Christ, and uh, as hard as I looked, I couldn't find a quote better than Spurgeon, and I do really try. 
But he says this, the preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound which makes all hell shake. It is powerful. The preaching of Christ is the sound that makes all hell shake. Uh, that should get you excited, like it gets me excited, right? And today I want to preach from a passage from Mark 11, okay? So we're skipping 10, now we're going to go to Mark 11, because I've just, when I was away in Sedgefield, I was just reading through it, and I read this one passage, and it just, I had questions, and I looked into it, and it's a profound, profound piece of scripture that I want to share with you. So it's about Jesus when he's entering into Jerusalem, okay? It's Mark uh, 11, 1 to 11. So let's read it. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, and Beth, what is that? Is that Beth, Bethphage? Bethphage, okay. And Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied up there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell them the Lord needs it. And send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside in the street, tied it to a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? I'm going to go a little bit further than that. Um, what verse is that? 10. Um, okay. All right, cool. Um, and some of them standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut in the field. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. And went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. Now, a little bit of context on this passage. We find it towards the end of the book of Mark, and uh, the transfiguration, as I said, has just happened. So these disciples have woken up to something of who Jesus is. He's not just a person or a good teacher or a prophet or a rabbi. There's, he, he's, he's God in that sense. And Peter, just before that, says, God, Jesus says, who are you? He says, you are the Christ. Okay, and just after this passage, uh, Jesus enters the temple, which he would then fashion the whip and drive the sellers out of the temple, and then he, he, he curses the fig trees. There's lots going on before and after this passage. But what is significant in some ways is that as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, there are a few believers who gather around him and kind of see him as maybe a prophet at the very least, or, or, or maybe even some of them see him as a savior. And the expectation, in a sense, in that time in Israel is that this Messiah would come to liberate them. And maybe this small crowd that gathers around Jesus thinks that this is the man. This is the one, as he enters into Jerusalem, he's going to bring change for the Jewish nation. And so these modest believers kind of usher him in, and as was a custom in the day for um, a teacher or a person of prominence, they would throw their cloaks on the ground as the, as the horse went over them. 
But ultimately, and this is the tragedy, where there were a few people who saw maybe who Jesus was. A few days later, as he stands with Pilate, that very crowd, or more of the crowd, stirred up by the Pharisees, are no longer singing Hosanna to the king. They are saying, give us Barabbas, crucify him. And so Jesus comes, riding on a donkey. And can I ask you, um, well, I can actually, I could ask you, but I'll just tell you. (laughs) Um, The question that I had, the deep theological question that I had while reading this passage in Sedgefield on holiday was why was Jesus riding on a donkey? Because this is Jesus the king, and you're going, why is he riding on a foal? Why isn't he riding? You see in in his portraits of Napoleon, Napoleon, he was really short, but on this massive horse with this big sword rearing up, the conquering king, Napoleon. And yet Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. Now, I've been to McGregor, and uh, in McGregor, there's a donkey sanctuary it's, <laughs> it's pretty much the most boring sanctuary you could ever really go to. Yeah, I know, it's hectic. I said it. Karen is offended. <laughs> but um, this is as far as we got. The girls and I were driving to Robertson, and then we saw the sanctuary. My mom sponsors donkeys in the sanctuary, so I thought I'd better go. thought I'd better go and uh, pay them a visit. Okay, calm down, calm down. I know you all are highly offended. But when I went there, uh, okay, Karen, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it. But donkeys are just really the weirdest looking animals. I just don't understand them. Like, they're almost like, they're trying to be horses, but they're just not. Like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like, their heads are too big, their ears are massive, their fur is not like lush and beautiful and sparkly, it's like matted and a bit like meh. Maybe it's just me. I mean, like, I'm making enemies here big time now, okay. (laughs) Let me say this, I find find donkeys unattractive and awkward. Okay, I said it, (laughs) and (laughs) and I love animals, okay. But there is, there's something about this thing of of the donkey, and uh, it was a thing I was just, I was pondering, going like, wow, okay, so obviously obviously there's significance to this thing, and a lot of you will know that there is significance to why Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, so the passage says, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks in it, and he sat on it. Well, well, why the donkey? If you leave with anything in your mind from this preach, just ask, keep asking yourself why the donkey, and when you see one, hopefully this preach comes flooding back into your mind. Firstly, and most obviously, Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem as a fulfillment of prophecy. Okay. And in fact, this is interesting because Mark's gospel doesn't actually go as far as many of the other gospels. He's quite restrained in actually giving um, too much of, of Jesus as the Messiah. He's actually quite like, he's a little bit reserved. Whereas Matthew and John, who build on the gospel of Mark, so Mark was the first gospel that was written, we know that, okay? And they kind of elaborates on this thing, but, but Mark is a little bit shy in a way of actually going, hey, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because what it is, it's a a fulfillment 
of Zechariah 9.9. I mean, you read it, you go, yes, of course. It says, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Written thousands of years before this act ever took place. Or Matthew 21, 4 to 5 says this. And Matthew is more explicit. Matthew often says in his, in his Gospels, this is a clearly what happened in this prophecy. You'll read Matthew. He's so convinced. He's like, well, it's obviously the fulfillment of this prophecy. And he says it here again. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in some ways you go, okay. For me, I was like, well, I kind of understand now why Jesus was so specific in the instructions that he gave to the disciples. Because you read it and you're going like, wow, Jesus, there's a lot going on here. And it's almost like Jesus, he knows the prophecy, and he almost prophesies to the disciples what's going to happen. Because look at this passage. He says, go into a village. And then in verse 4 it says, and they went away. And he says, find a colt tied up. So you, when they go to the village, they, what do they do? They find a colt tied up, and they untied it. And then they went back to him immediately. And if you look at that, at, that, at that prophecy, again, of Zechariah, greatly rejoice, daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. What is happening when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey? What are the people doing? They're shouting, Hosanna. Again, the fulfillment of this prophecy, that the people recognize something of who Jesus was. Zechariah's prophecy from years before is fulfilled, and I love seeing our Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in the new to the life of Jesus Christ. And this is one of only maybe a hundred or so, over a hundred prophecies throughout the Old and New Testament that testify to Jesus coming as the Messiah. That's the first thing. Jesus comes on a donkey because it was prophesied that as a king he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And still the question lingered in my mind. Why the donkey? <laughs> Prophecy is good. The second reason that I thought was, well, this is what I, I found, is that donkeys are a symbol of peace, humility, service, and suffering. Okay. In the ancient Middle East, if a leader rode into a city or a town on a horse, it means that they rode to war. War horses. Horses were very much about, if you're riding a horse, you have an intention. But a donkey came in peace. And perhaps more importantly, this thing of a donkey, that if you rode a donkey into a city, it means in some cases that you came to enact a treaty with those people. If you were riding a donkey into a city, it means you came in peace. And many leaders would do that. If they were signing a treaty together, they would both come on donkeys as really awkward, ugly animals. They would come to the meeting. Well, maybe that's why they came on them specifically, because like, they really are not harmful at all. But if one leader comes on a donkey and another leader comes on the horse, it means this guy wants war. 
And then this guy's in trouble because donkeys can't run very fast and it's all over. So maybe that was a good strategy. <laughs> yeah, I got your donkey like, ah. <laughs> And in many ways with Jesus coming, riding in on a donkey, he, he kind of just, uh, he, he does this thing that Israel's not expecting, even though prophecy foretells it. Israel's going, the Messiah is coming. And he'll come on a war horse and he'll destroy Rome and take away all the oppression and it'll be awesome. And we know that Jesus always does the opposite of what they expect a lot of the time. Jesus, in the fulfillment of prophecy as a king, doesn't come riding into the capital on a horse of war but on a lowly cult to establish not only a treaty, but an everlasting covenant that would be inaugurated in his blood. Think about that. If Jesus had just come into Jerusalem to sign a treaty going, well, I'm signing a treaty for the Jews. Please be nice to them. But he doesn't. He comes in with the ultimate offer of peace and mercy and grace in himself, which would only be inaugurated by his blood on the cross. And because he came, or because he was sent, we now have access to his grace, his peace, his joy, and the promise of eternal life. And maybe you are sitting here this evening and you're going, okay, so Jesus came to enact this covenantal promise with people. But it doesn't really mean too much to you or you've never surrendered yourself to him or you've never found yourself confessing your sin. I don't know, I know most people in this room. You've never asked God for forgiveness. And I must say this, but I think sometimes in the church we try to downplay the gospel a little bit. You're not that bad. (laughs) Just tell Jesus that you love him and you're saved. Don't worry about sin. That's cool. Don't worry about it. In fact, come to Jesus and the gospel and just keep doing what you're doing because you're so awesome. Jesus is an add-on. I wish I was making this stuff up, but some of the gospel messages I've heard are just insane. (laughs) But Jesus coming in on this animal of service and humility, we today have Christ's offer of salvation. We have the promise of forgiveness of sins. We have the offer of peace with him. Romans 5. And today he offers freedom from guilt, from shame, and condemnation. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, I tell you, now is the time 
of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Today we live and move and breathe as believers under a covenant of grace. I love covenantal theology, but I won't bore you with it now. The covenant of grace is an incredible thing that God has given to us as believers. And as believers, we are tasked with this thing. We are given these gifts, but there are people who don't know this about Christ. And as believers, uh, Paul says, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And it's what Julian was saying. We've got these incredible gifts from God. We've got peace with him. We've been justified, which means we have peace with him. And now what we do is we take that to others and go, you too can have peace with God. As we spoke about before, um, I can't, about people who are harassed. It says that they're like sheep without a shepherd. They are harassed. Today is the day of salvation for everyone. And maybe everyone in this room is saved, and that is incredible. But maybe today or tomorrow is the day of salvation for someone that you know. Because while today Christ has come and offered us peace and forgiveness and grace, there is coming a day when Jesus will return. But he will not return on a donkey. And there is a day coming where there will no longer be time for people to seek him. Now that should put the fear of God into us. And the day of salvation will be gone. That just gives me, I don't know, Guys, there's coming a day where there will no longer be a chance of salvation. Do we know that? Because when Jesus returns, when that day comes, he no longer comes on a donkey, but he comes on a white horse. A horse of war. And when I was reading this passage and going, Jesus, you came on a donkey to offer peace and grace, but you're coming back on a horse. That is terrifying. For people who don't know you, Jesus, that is terrifying. Thank you, Jesus, that I know you. I'm like, God, I never want to be in a place where you come back and I don't know you because you're not coming back for peace. Revelations 19, 11, 16 says this, Now I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus judges and makes war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was weird. <laughs> Got carried away. <laughs> no, but I don't want to detract from the seriousness of this. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one ex- on, on, that no one knew except him. And he was clothed in a robe dripped, dri- dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses, horses of war. Now out of his mouth came a sharp sword, and with it he would strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself, Jesus. He himself, Jesus. Listen to this. Treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A well-known theologian wrote this. The first time Jesus came to slay sin in men. Jesus comes on a donkey. The second time he will come to slay men in sin. <laughs> and something inside of us recoils at this thought. Something goes, and it's like, is this Jesus? Is this the same Jesus who healed the sick? who helped the lepers, who who had compassion on people and loved them. Yes, it is. The lowly and the gentle Christ. Doesn't he want everyone to be saved? What are you talking about that he comes and presses the wine press of God's fury and wrath? 2 Peter 3, 9 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But, (laughs) Scripture, but, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and its works will be laid bare. You see, on that great, glorious, and terrible day, there will be only one response. The whole world will fall to their knees. And those who believe will fall in praise and adoration, while those who don't will fall to their knees in despair. Because it's too late. The day of salvation is gone. Today, We need to ask ourselves, how will we fall to our knees 
on that day. I pray that all of us would fall to our knees in praise and adoration of our coming King. That when He rides on that white horse, we know He's not coming to declare war against us, but He's coming to fetch us. That as the trumpet sounds, we will be, as Thessalonians says, caught up, hapodso, with Him in the sky. Charles Spurgeon said it, and I'll say it again. This is the gospel that makes all hell shake. It's not the gospel of easy believism, but it's the gospel of repent and believe. He is both the humble servant on the foal and the warrior king on the white horse. Revelations 5, 5 says this, and, the one, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are all the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. James and I were talking about numbers in the Bible this week. We had a coffee. Seven every day. <laughs> he came as the lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world and paid the sacrifice for our sins. But he will return as the conquering lion. C.S. Lewis wrote the Narnia books. Um, shockingly, I've never read them. I know, you're all very shocked, I know. I saw, the mo- I saw one movie with Heike when we were dating. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't even remember. <laughs> That's how romantic I was. And C.S. Lewis writes in his one book about Aslan, and obviously Aslan in many ways is this figure of Christ. And it's a, it's a great little dialogue. I'm sure you might have heard it before. Preachers like to use this. So it says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. (laughs) I'd thought he was a man. I love this old English. Is he quite safe? (laughs) I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. And I think something about that when you read that, you're going, we have to see Jesus as the lion and the lamb. Yes, he is good, but he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Let's just not take it for granted. Ah, it's Jesus. I think I know most people here tonight. But on just writing this, I was like, if there isn't anyone who knows Christ, as a minister of the gospel, my duty is to implore you to know Christ. In light of what we've just read. Because one day, and I never usually preach like this, one day, (laughs) it will be too late. 
And that day could be tomorrow. Because the Bible, I'm not making that, the Bible says he comes as a thief. Who knows when the final day comes? Who knows when we could be sleeping one night and suddenly the, the heavens are awake and lightened up and there's trumpets and Jesus is returning. When we least expect it. <laughs> I, think, I think as people we just take for granted that we've got a lot of time. We do, hey? I always do that. I'm like 45. Ah, I've got like another 50 years. Are we, what, 95? I hope I'm not 95. <laughs> I'd be very grumpy at 95. <laughs> and maybe we all know Christ here, and that's awesome. But we need to think of those people who don't know Christ. Because there are people who don't know Him. We need to know Him as we had that time of ministry. We need to know Him as the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. We need to be reconciled to Him. You need to bow their knee to him as Lord and Savior and be saved from that day. Is there anyone here who has never accepted Christ as their Savior? Because if you haven't, I would implore you, as Paul tells me to do in 1 Corinthians, to receive Christ as your Savior. You can come talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk to you about that. And then we had a response in worship, which was a little bit um, unexpected, but good. Because Jesus is a lion and a lamb, and sometimes we need the lamb to comfort us, and sometimes we need the lion of Judah to roar on our behalf as we are surrounded by Christians and fellow uh, saints, as we war against things that might be holding us back. I love that scripture, a bruised reed he will not break. Richard Sibbs, the famous Puritan, wrote a book called Bruised Reed. I highly recommend it. And if you are struggling with things you can't break, like addictions, or maybe you feel like there's something demonic happening in your life, because let's be honest, a lot of us have struggled with things in our lives. And a lot of us do struggle. I mean, we're in a war with the devil, right? Do we know that? There are demonic forces that come against us. This is biblical. <laughs> no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This, we love that first line. This is what it says here. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, says the Lord. No weapon formed against you will prosper because as a servant of Christ, this is your heritage. Sometimes we just let weapons and everything formed against us take us out. That's not your heritage. 